This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. If you've been here before, you've probably heard us talk about the case we're going to do today, John Bonet Ramsey. And I think Eric and I would both agree that this is the one that kicked it off for both of us. Oh, yeah. It's a classic American Christmas story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like they drew it up in the book. And it's the 25th anniversary. Oh, my gosh. I, I didn't even realize that. But yeah, that makes sense. Yep. 1996. God, that was nice. That was 25 years ago. That's crazy, too. <laughs> yeah, makes you feel old. I, yeah, real quick, but I'm still young. I, I can still do things, so I'm good. Yeah, but I think that's why we relate to this case so much is because we were around her age. We were only a little bit older than her when this happened. I think that's exactly right. She didn't look like a typical six-year-old either, so you know she was always glammed up, and she just looked like a baby model. Yep. You know, she just she felt... Like she was famous, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I feel like that did have a lot to do with the public fascination with her. I think so, too. I mean, I think that there was a lot that went into it, but there was probably a lot of controversy already just on her looking like that at six years old. Like, I'm sure a lot of people then and now would say that she was exploited, you know, dressing like that. Oh, yeah. Just a few. I mean, that's our from crime to crime stance, right? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. We're pretty much against pageants, right? Yeah, I know. Sometimes the people in this house, they'll walk around and they'll play that toddlers in pageant show. And I just, if I don't turn it off, I really want to turn it off because it's just, it's, it's criminal, honestly. Yeah, like, it's gross. It, yeah. I don't like it. It really is gross. And it can't be good for little girls' self-esteem and all that stuff. It's like, ugh. I mean, we'll get it, we'll get into the pageant stuff more in the episode, but my stance is I'm not for them. Yeah, I'm not for that. Or And I'm all for dance and stuff, but I'm not for like the little get-ups that they put those little girls in and dance. So that's yeah. my official stance. So, all right, well, let's get into this episode because we're both pretty excited about this one. I am. When we talked about doing this one, I was like, really? You think we're ready? And you had to talk me into it. You had to pump me up, but I... I think we're ready. I think we're ready to Which to get is it going. funny because you've been saying you wanted to do it since we started this podcast and I kept telling you we weren't ready. I know, but I, it's because I knew we weren't ready. But now that you think we're ready, we're really ready. Yep. So this is probably going to be a pretty long episode. We might have to cut it in two parts if we ramble on too much. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it did end up in two parts. So I guess you guys will know that by the time we post this because if it has a little part one after it, then we rambled too much. Surprise, surprise. Yep. So this story starts on Christmas night in Boulder, Colorado, which was like picturesque for Christmas night. You know, it's the mountains and snow and it's a beautiful town. And yeah, you know, you, they, you think that you really do. But in Colorado, like if you look one way, like you see that you see the beautiful Rockies and it's picturesque. And then if you look the other way, it's just plains. So I don't know if where they were exactly, but. Well, they were in Boulder and it's beautiful. It's mountainy and it's a really small community. It's really gorgeous. I hope so. Because the time that I spent in Colorado, part of it, I was like, this is be- like one way was beautiful. And the other way I was like, well, that could be Nebraska for all I know. <laughs> it's Kansas, Grant. But you get what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
I meant that it was just flat. I did, I should have used the state next to it, but I didn't. Anyway, <laughs> Kansas and Nebraska are the exact same, so it's fine either way. So is Iowa. Okay. Now that we've offended most of the Midwest, well, let's get back to the story. So Boulder, Colorado, Christmas 96, and the Ramsey family consisted of 52-year-old John Ramsey, who was the CEO of a company called Access Graphics that was doing super well. They just turned a billion dollars in sales, and he was named Entrepreneur of the Year by the Boulder Chamber of Commerce. Yeah, this guy was worth over like $7 million. Like they were doing very, very well. Yeah, they were doing great. So his wife's name was Patsy Ramsey, and she was a former beauty queen and the mother of their two children, Burke, who was nine, and John Bonet, who was six. Patsy also had been diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer a few years before this, and she actually was in remission by this time. So she beat she beat it. Yeah, which was fantastic. I mean, you know, ovarian it's cancer. Incredible. Can, yeah, ovarian cancer is a terrible cancer to get, and so you know, it's great she was able. Yeah, to... and she was stage four. Yeah, which is pretty late in the game. Right, that was great. John had three kids from his first marriage too, and they were older. They still lived in the Atlanta area where the Ramseys had relocated from a few years ago. But John was originally from Michigan and the family spent a lot of time up there too. And he had actually lost his older daughter, Elizabeth, a few years before that in a really, really bad car accident. That's devastating. Yeah. And here it comes. He has another daughter and he named her after himself. You know, his name was John Bennett Ramsey, and they named her first name. They kind of put a little French twist on it, and became John Bennet, and then Patricia, oh, yeah. her mom's mom's name, um, in the middle too. So John Bennet, Patricia Ramsey. It was like the Brangelina before that was. A thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was a portmanteau of her dad's first and middle name, and then her middle name was her mom's middle name. Uh, Oh, I don't know, to a, me, I'm like, what, what, do you really what is need a like portmanteau? What is a portmanteau? It's when you mix two words to make a new word. Whoa, you didn't know that. Where did where did you see that? You don't. You didn't know that before you did this. Yes, I did, Grant. It's what? It's a term. Don't portmanteau. Act I've never heard. You're of it. educated. I you have a college degree. You idiot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyone can buy one of those. No, that's what it means. It's like when you mix two words to make a new word, like hangry is a portmanteau because it's hungry and angry mixed together to make it like a whole new word. Huh. Google it, dude. I'm not an idiot. I didn't make that up. You had that in your back pocket to just pull out for our notes, though? That's impressive. Yes. Like, I'm I'm impressed with that. I had no idea that, that was anything. So that's okay. good on you, man. You probably rock at Scrabble, huh? Well, I don't suck at it. Yeah, I do. I don't play those games. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, the Ramses were multimillionaires, and they lived a very comfortable life. They lived at 755 15th Street in Boulder, Colorado. The house is still there, but the address has changed, which is kind of funny. It's like, you think if you change the address, people aren't going to know it's the John Bonet Ramsey house? I wouldn't. I would have no idea. If it wasn't the same address, I would have zero clue. Who oh, would? How would yeah. you? How would you know? Well, Just from pictures? Yeah. Oh, I would have... I, I mean, I would look at pictures, sure, but I'd be like, oh, I guess they change things, which yeah. would make sense. I would think they'd demo it, you know? No. It's a beautiful house. It's seven bedrooms, eight bathrooms. It's like over 7,000 square feet. It had three floors and a basement. So just to give you an idea, it's not for sale, but the Z estimate on Zillow is $4 million today. 
So, I mean, it's a beautiful home. You think like a true crime super fan owns it? Like they knew what they were doing and they were like, yep. No, I think I think the evangelical pastor, Robert Schuler. I think his daughter and her husband own it. What? Well, I don't think. I know. I Googled all of this. So they, why? I don't know. Because they live there and they bought it. Oh, maybe. Well, who knows? It's a beautiful home. Yeah. It's I'm a, sure it is. But I, I mean, would love to live there. <laughs> yeah. But you're a true crime nut. That would be like me living in the baseball hall of fame. Yeah. But maybe, maybe they're true crime people. Who knows? That's what I asked. Or maybe that no, but I mean, maybe they're true crime fans. They're not like true crime people. I don't know, Grant. <laughs> yeah, so this house is beautiful, and the Ramseys had, like, private planes and sailboats and yachts. I mean, they were doing pretty well. Yeah, they're, his company was just taking off like a rocket ship. Yeah, in fact, he had just recently sold it to Lockheed Martin, so which is a huge company, so it's a big deal. So Patsy was really into decorating and showing off her house at the holidays. She was a socialite. It's been said in multiple retellings of this story that she had a Christmas tree in almost every room of the house. And each one of them had its own theme. And she was just really enjoying her life. She was extra before extra was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of extra, one of the things that she liked the most was coaching John Bonet in her beauty pageants. So she was a stage mom, and we've all seen the pics of John Bonet in full makeup and her bleached hair at six years old. And I'm sure everyone has their own opinion on this, like we talked about. But it's well, yeah, but it's a pa- lot. Yeah, but be- Patsy and her sister were beauty queens, so it was just like one of the things that they just did for the family. Like this was their family thing, and I guess right or wrong, John Bonet was pretty good at him. You know, she. Won quite oh, a yeah. few titles in her very short six years. So yeah, she she did what she was supposed to do, I guess. Like Yeah, and like you talked about, that was the main point of the public's fascination with her is all of these videos and pictures and audio clips of her singing at talent competitions and stuff. Like you can really connect with this little girl, but only through this one thing. Like that's what she was known for. Right. And I... I don't know if it was as big a part of her life as it turned out to be in the media after she died, but you don't think I mean, maybe so? it was. I think there was other parts to her. I think she was a six-year-old little kid. I think she liked to ride her bike. I think she liked to do other things. Like, that wasn't the only thing she did. No, I'm sure that's absolutely true, but, you know, and there are all rumors and speculation and stuff, but you do definitely wonder how much of this was because John Bonet loved doing it and... How much was because Patsy was living vicariously through her? Well, and even, you know, it was her her and her sister were pageant queens. So obviously yeah. her mom was involved in that too. So that's, you know, grandma and mom and now John Bonet. And who knows about above that? I don't know. I'm not too sure about the beauty pageant line, how far back it goes. Yeah. Well, and they had endless money, which yeah. costumes are expensive, photographs are expensive. All that stuff is expensive. And they spared no expense. I mean, she had the best costumes, the best makeup, the best hair. I mean, she was six years old and she was getting her hair done, like bleached. Yeah. And as somebody who's done that to themselves, bleaching your hair, like, it doesn't hurt, but it doesn't feel great. Like, and it's six, you know, like. Well, as a hairdresser, I would tell you I would never bleach a six-year-old's hair. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. I wouldn't even touch it because their hair is different when it's that when they're that young. So fine. Yeah. Once a kid has hit puberty and 
their hair changes and everything, then screw it. Dye it pink, do blue, whatever you want to do. But a little six-year-old, there's no way I would be bleaching a six-year-old's hair. Yeah. I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. As we're going to find out, this whole pageant world is upside down, man. Like, yeah, it's weird. Plus the creeps. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Like, that's why it's so (laughs) upside down is because there's creeps throughout the entire thing. And everyone's just kind of like, it is what it is. Like, no, it's absolutely not. Yeah, it's not. So, all right. Well, before we get into the creeps, let's go back 25 years now to Christmas Day, 1996. Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart, Say You Love Me Again. There it is. That was number one on the radio. And in the movie theaters was Sling Blade, Jerry Maguire, and Scream. I was just talking about Jerry Maguire today. That's great. Yeah. So this is when we're talking about. So 25 years ago. It's a while back. So the Ramses woke up. They had a normal Christmas morning. They got up. They opened presents with their kids. The kids went outside, played with their friends for a bit, played with all their presents. Then the family got ready and they went to dinner at a family friend's house. This dinner that they went to was at the Whites, which is their friends Fleet and Priscilla White. <laughs> Sorry. Fleet? Uh- yeah, Fleet White. <laughs> Why is that so funny? Oh, that's the most like posh name. Oh, Hello. it's super. I'm Fleet White. Like, oh, I bet you definitely- are. Owns a sailboat and wears deck shoes, for sure. And probably talks like this. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It is is a fun name. So remember that name, though, because he comes into play later. If anybody knows Fleet White, can you get us in touch with him? All right, go ahead. (laughs) So after the White's Christmas dinner, the Ramseys left, and on the way home, they stopped and dropped off gifts at a few of their other friends' houses, and then they headed home. And according to the Ramses, this was at about 10 o'clock. Normal enough. They say that John Bonet just fell asleep on the car ride home. And that makes sense. John carried her into bed and then the parents stayed up and they kind of played around with Burke for a little bit and then ended up putting Burke to bed after that. And Burke is her older brother. I don't know if we mentioned that. Yeah, we did. Okay. The next morning, Patsy and John wake up early to get the family ready to head to Michigan to celebrate the holiday with John's older kids, John Andrew and Melinda. And Patsy heads down the spiral staircase from their third floor bedroom to go to the kitchen to make coffee. And she finds a three page ransom note at the bottom of the stairs. And it is so ridiculously long and rambling that it makes almost no sense. Like, the tone changes. Everything is really weird. This ransom note, it plays such a huge part in this. Like, it's it's a key piece into why we have no idea, like, how this case went. Yeah, totally. So we're going to play a recording of the ransom note, like a reading of the ransom note. So if you already know what it says and you don't care, I would skip ahead a little bit because it is rambling and long. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. 
The delivery would be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement, countermeasures, and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory, SBTC. Uh, okay, so it starts very odd. Yeah, listen carefully. It's a note. Right. I'm not listening. <laughs> right. Well, and it just listen carefully. And it's obviously directed at John. And because it is, it, that opens the door to several different options of who it could be as well. Like this whole thing and how specific some of these pieces were and the words that they used are just so, yeah. so strange. Like they said that they represent a small foreign faction. It's like if you're trying to intimidate somebody and tell them that you have their daughter... Why would you use the word small? Yeah. I don't know. And like the length of it, handwriting experts say that could have took somebody up to 22 minutes to, to write that. It takes people 22 minutes to write it, copying it. It would have taken longer to write it if you would have had to think of the what you were going to write. Oh, I misunderstood that. Yeah. It takes 22 minutes to write out this ransom note from reading it. Wow. That's... Yeah. It's pretty insane. The $118,000 is a random amount. Well, it is a random amount. And what we will find out later is that that was actually the bonus that John received from his company that year was $118,000. So now this opens it up to, it has to be somebody personal to know that yeah. kind of really sensitive information. Maybe somebody from work or a family member Somebody close to him did this. Yeah, for that specific amount to be the same amount as his Christmas bonus is a little bit kind of weird. Well, it could be a coincidence, too. You know, there's nothing that ever proves why it is that amount. 118 is a very weird number, but maybe there's some connection to somebody for 118,000. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows? Yeah. So totally. I don't know. There's just a lot. It also says that they'll call between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow, which a lot of people put a lot of weight on that 10 a.m. deadline that morning. And it does say tomorrow. It doesn't say today. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't catch that. Yeah. And a lot of people put a lot of weight on that day after Christmas, 10 a.m. And it's like the note specifically says tomorrow. So it's like, does that mean tomorrow because they left it before midnight, or does that mean tomorrow because they left it after midnight? Yeah, when did they leave? It must be. Well, you got, I mean, if you're thinking as that person, they're going to see it 
as when they're writing it. Yeah. Well, they're going to, as they're writing it, because those people are going to see it the next morning when they get up for, you know, their day. Right. So that's the 26th. So they should be talking about the 27th in the note then. Yeah. Because this was the day after Christmas. So the 26th, they're talking about the 27th. Correct. In the letter. That's what it seems like to me. Me too. But the Ramses and the cops all waited around the phone until 10 a.m. on the 26th, not the 27th. Well, and a lot of people say that's what makes them think that John Ramsey's guilty is because 10 a.m. came and went and he didn't freak out. And he said in interviews, he's like, that's because the note could have meant that day or the next day. It could have meant either day. Yeah. And obviously we find out eventually that it won't get to that far. But yeah, I just think that's really interesting that it's it's vague about when it doesn't say 8 and 10 a.m today and it doesn't say 8 and 10 a.m on the 26th it says 8 and 10 a.m tomorrow like it's very vague on when they're gonna call and then there's other things in there about all that shit about the stray dog and if you alert bank authorities and all that stuff it's like straight up from the movie ransom oh yeah it's almost word for word from the movie ransom which was out at that time, so I mean, it was in theaters at that right. time, right? So yeah, that I mean, maybe they just went yeah. with an easy plot line. You know, they just followed that. Yeah. Obviously, it didn't need to get to the next day, so yeah, maybe that's all it was. I don't know. The tone of the letter just changes so much from each paragraph, like or each page, I guess, because they're not really paragraphs, but it just changes so much. In the beginning, it makes it sound like it's a group of people and they're foreign and all this stuff and then in the middle it's like very clear instructions and then like it's literally like word for word from different movies that they from Die Hard and Ransom and a bunch of different movies and then the very last I don't know three or four sentences to me sound like a wife yelling at her husband like don't try to grow a brain John like I swear I've said that to my husband his name is Matt he probably hates if you call him John Uh, it sounds like the way that this letter writer is writing like his uh, name. They say the word, they say the name John like four times in the last three sentences. And in the beginning of the letter, they were calling him Mr. Ramsey. So it's like, why does the tone change? I don't know. I mean, I know that there's different ways to take it, but I think, I, I don't think that's super significant. I don't think that that puts a lot of weight into it. I think this person knew him personally. Like, whoever did this, I think. They they knew him very well. That's why some of the, that's why it changed. I think that's why it changed is because whoever did it was close to him in some way. Yeah, maybe. So it was also the weird initials at the end of it: SBTC and the word victory. And what's weird is it's written victory SBTC, but in Patsy's nine one one call, they ask her who signed it, and she says it the other way around. Is that significant? No, I mean I. Everything in this case is significant because we don't know what's significant. I guess that's true. You could dissect this ransom letter word for word and everything is significant. Because the only thing that makes this ransom letter, according to people, matter is if Patsy wrote it. Because they're like, oh, it doesn't make sense for an intruder. It doesn't make sense for John. The only reason it makes sense is for Patsy. But that's not true. It makes sense for a hundred different reasons. But Patsy's a big one. Patsy's a total big one, you know. Yeah, we'll get into that in theory. Yeah, in theories. Yeah. All right. So one of the biggest things that people notice is how long this ransom note is. Besides all the weird stuff and everything, ransom notes apparently are usually pretty short and like to the point. I would You know, think. they usually say like, we have your daughter, get this amount of money and don't call the police and we'll call you. Like they don't have, go into all this shit about 
stray dogs and attaches to the bank and all this shit. Like, that's a lot of things. And like you said, it would take somebody a lot of time. Yeah. Just trying to think. So I'm just trying to put it all together. Yeah. So after she reads the ransom note, Patsy runs upstairs, checks John Bonet's bedroom and Burke's bedroom, and then calls 911. And some people might say this is strange because the note said not to call 911, but I think that doesn't make any sense. I, like, I'm calling 911 either way. Yeah. You have to. I mean. Yeah. And according to retellings from Burke and John and everybody else involved, Patsy was nervous and kind of was fighting with John. Like, it says not to call the police. And he's like, we have to call the police. Like, our daughter is missing, you know. So a lot of people judge her for calling 911, even though the note says not to. But you have to call 911. You can't handle this yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You're not Liam Neeson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but think about it, though. Like. That's a really hard place to be in. Like, that's straight out of a movie script. Yeah. You have to make a call. Like, can I do, like, oh my gosh. To think that that life can actually get that dark, you know? Yeah. That's a side of life that we've never, ever come close to dealing with. Yeah. I don't think, unless you've got some some stories to tell. No. All right. So, I can understand why she would call 911. The one thing that is weird to me, though, is that, she mentions the ransom note on the 911 call and that her daughter's missing, but she doesn't mention, like, hey, be cool when you send the cops to my house because it says not to call the cop. I don't know. I feel like I would have said something to the 911 operator, like, hey, can you, like, not send a marked car? Don't do lights and sirens. Like, you know, but then again, they were in shock, so maybe she wouldn't say that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like, that's... That is such a hard call to to make. Like, your brain's running a million miles an hour. Yeah. I get where you're going with it. I understand it. It's just, that's, yeah. that's tough. Yeah. So we're going to insert the audio from the 911 call right now so you guys can hear what, what we're talking about. It's an interesting 911 call, but I struggle to like judge 911 calls because you never know how you're going to react in that. Yeah, absolutely. Things are going on. A lot of people judge her because she says, I am the mother. So it seems kind of disconnected. A lot of people judge it because she never says JonBenet's name. 
Um, did unless they ask, like, why? Why would she? Yeah, I don't really see a lot wrong with this nine one one call. No, I mean, I don't get a lot from it. There's not a lot that speaks to me here. A lot of people overly dissect it because they say she should have said something like, "My daughter's been kidnapped," and instead yeah. she says, "We have a kidnapping." And but it's like people talk differently, and a lot of people judge her because she hangs up on the nine one one operator. Apparently, that's not very common when you're in like a big emergency like this. Usually, that's like your lifeline to the outside world for help. So usually, they don't hang up. Yeah. And she hangs up on the 911 operator. Eh, I don't care. I don't get much out of this. I don't either. The other thing that people overly analyze is the muffled noises at the end of the call. People have read and reread and tried to clean up that audio five million times. And they say that they can hear Burke's voice and John's voice and Patsy say things. And it's like you can't hear anything at the end of that call. Yeah. I don't get much from this. Like, I don't, I know a lot of people put a lot of stock into this, but I don't, I don't, I don't get a lot out of this. So I just kind of, all right. You know, (laughs) I just like what you're saying. I don't think that you can really judge somebody in that state until you're in that state. And I think even then everybody reacts differently. Yep. So she calls 911 at 552. You just heard that call and the cops were there in seven minutes, but not the real cops. They were all on Christmas vacation. (laughs) The ones that showed up were definitely like second string or JB squad, if you will. Yeah, B team got there. Yeah. We're not bashing cops at all. Like, we generally are very pro-police, but it sounds like we're not on this podcast sometimes because when we talk about unsolved cases, a lot of times it's because they were bumbled. It kind of sucks. It makes us sound like we don't like the cops, but that's not the case. Generally, we're pretty pro-police, but... There was mistakes made in this one, which happens, but what makes the difference is how you handle it. These cops had zero experience, which is a good thing. It means your city is pretty safe. But the problem with that is that they still had like huge egos and they wouldn't admit that they didn't know what they were doing and ask for help. Like from the FBI or Denver to this day, they're still like 100% committed to their theory of what happened and they won't let the evidence tell them any different. Yeah, it's really sad. Like the FBI has offered like, hey, can we help you out, please? Like a little bit. And they're like, nope, we don't need it. And the FBI is like baffled. They're like, what do you mean? Like there's no shame in asking for help if you need it. Like- just yeah. just ask. Like, it's okay. You're a small, very safe community. It's a good thing. Yeah. You're you're like it, it's good that you don't know how to work homicides. Yeah. It's not something you really want to be, you know, an expert at, unless I guess you really do want to be an expert at it, but you get yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. So at five fifty nine AM, Officer French arrives on the scene and he's the first police officer on the scene. In the next two hours, four more officers arrive. They do like a cursory search of the home, which pretty much means they looked in JonBenet's bedroom and they were like, yep, she's gone. (laughs) And they taped that off and was like, hey, probably don't go in her bedroom. But that was it. Patsy and John said Burke was still sleeping when they got up. And then he stayed in his room most of the day. And the Ramseys called friends and their pastor over. And the police were just like, please come on in, walk around make coffee and bagels in our active crime scene. Make sure when you're done, you wipe off the kitchen counter so we don't find any fingerprints later on. (laughs) It was a real mess. Yeah. And the cops have since given interviews about how weird it was 
that the Ramseys called their friends and their pastor over. But I'm like, no, guys, the weird thing is that you allowed all of this to go on. The Ramseys aren't cops. They don't know that they can't fuck up a crime scene. Why would it be their responsibility to not do this? Yeah. Like, you're the ones who were paid to do this, but... Yeah. You know, I mean, and again, homicide, sure, but like crime scene, you guys should have crime scene figured out. Like there's still some crimes that go on. Yeah. Like don't let six or eight people walk around it all day. Yeah. And clean it. Yeah. That's probably, I'm one that doesn't know a whole lot about crime scene, you know, tampering and whatnot, but I would definitely say that would be one that I wouldn't do. I wouldn't clean. I wouldn't. Hey, go ahead and clean that that, uh, area. Yeah. Stupid. Nice and spick and span. Linda Arndt was the first and only detective at the house with the family. She arrived shortly after 8 a.m., which was already after when the ransom note said that they were going to call, supposedly. But that's beside the point. Could they just not get a hold of a detective? Like, did they all just have their phones off? Or their their, their pagers on on buzz and they didn't hear it? I don't know. So apparently all the other police officers that were there were like, well, you got this. Call us if you need anything when the detective got there. But Linda didn't have this. She was completely in over her head. She has said that she called for backup multiple times and nobody ever came. So at this point, there's four family friends, the Whites, the Fernies, the Pastor, and John and Patsy and Burke. Oh, fleet's over. Yep. So they're all walking around the crime scene and waiting for the ransom call because the note said between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow. And Linda told ABC News later on in an interview that 10 a.m. came and no one freaked out, which she noted was suspicious. But in her same retelling of the story, she said a little later around 1 p.m. everybody was getting really tense. And it's like, yeah, because they were freaking out, Linda. (laughs) Like the ransom caller didn't call like the kidnapper didn't call. And yeah, maybe nobody freaked out right at 10 a.m., but that's why it was getting really tense is because everybody knew there was a problem. Yeah, of course. So she said it was getting tense and she asked John and his friend Fleet White to search the house top to bottom. She wanted to give them something to do, apparently, to break this tension, but she told them not to touch anything if they found anything out of place. She said it was suspicious that they went from the bottom to the top since she said top to bottom. I think it's suspicious that you're having the family of a kidnapped child search their own home after supposedly the police officers already did that. And I don't think it's that weird anyway for these guys because they're in the middle area. They've already been up to the top. So they're probably like, okay, like, so they just go to the basement. Well, because they started in the top, like JonBenet's bedroom was on the second floor and right. And Patsy and John's bedroom was on the third floor. Right. The entire third floor was their bedroom, correct? Right. So they would have already looked there. I can understand them going down to the basement like, oh, you know what? We didn't check here yet. Didn't think about that. When she said bottom, it it triggered something. So, okay. Yep. So shortly after 1 p.m., Fleet White and John Ramsey go down to the basement. And there's a small room in the corner of the basement known as like the wine cellar. John Ramsey opens the door and finds his daughter. And he immediately scoops her up and rips a strip of duct tape off her mouth and runs her up the stairs. So that whole like, don't touch anything, that didn't work because he's not a cop. He's a father. He shouldn't have been searching his own house. Yep. When I see interviews with Linda Arndt and she's like, he just totally destroyed the crime scene. It's like his daughter. Do you do you realize that it's his daughter? Yeah, you destroyed the crime scene. 
Yeah. Like, who wouldn't pick up their baby and rip the duct tape off her mouth? And I mean, like, I'm surprised he didn't rip all the other stuff off of her. Yeah. Like, you're insane. So Linda orders him to put John Bonet down, and she recalls this whole thing and says she remembers telling John to go and call 911 and tucking her shoulder holster close to her and counting how many bullets she had because she felt like she didn't know if they would be alive when backup arrived. I'm like, this is very dramatic. Oh, yeah. What? Okay. Well, because she says she's scared. She felt like she knew John was the murderer. And it's like, well, okay. So you could see where their confirmation bias starts right from day one with the Boulder police. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you watch interviews with her, there's just like no doubt in her mind. Like she has a gut feeling. So that's it. It's like, okay, Linda. Yeah. And this was... Obviously, just a complete mess. It was an absolute shit show, for lack of a better term. And yeah. John put a blanket over John Bonet, like, and that's an obvious thing to do, is it not? Like, you know, like at that point, what else are you gonna do? Like, you don't want to just sit there and, like, you know what's ha- like, you know what you're looking at. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Right. So he put the blanket over, but then Patsy came in screaming and threw herself on top of John Bonet, and then. Finally, at 1.20, backup finally arrived, so... Yeah, so for about 20 minutes, Linda was just, like, totally not in control of this crime scene. Exactly. There was just people touching the body, people putting things on the body, people on the body. Like, there was just zero control. Yeah. This could have been a very solvable case, perhaps. Oh, yeah. But this whole thing turned into a mess. Yeah, easily. And And some accounts even say that John was on the phone shortly after the body was found with his private pilot telling him to get his plane ready to take the family to Atlanta. And the police were like, well, maybe you better hang on a second. We're going to have some questions. (laughs) Like, you can't just leave right away. Yeah. That is, I will say, if that is true, that is suspicious. Yes. But it also isn't. I don't think so because Atlanta's their home and they just lost their daughter and his, his older two kids. Right. That's what I was going to say. They had flown to Michigan to meet them. And then when they landed in Michigan, they found out that John Bonet was kidnapped. So then they flew to Colorado. So they're in Colorado. So I just feel like he just wanted to get his family back home. I don't know. I feel like whenever I have a tough day, I moved out of state. And even if I just have like a long day at work, I just like want to go home, <laughs> like to California, like to my mom's, you know? Yeah. Like, I can, I totally understand this about just wanting to go. Anyway, the police think that's suspicious, though, and they're like, no, you can't leave. I can totally understand just wanting to get the hell out of there. What a nightmare. Nothing's going to, like, just get me out of here. Whatever. Just get me. I totally understand it. Yeah. It's a little suspicious. I get it. But it also, Mm -hmm. when you take it into consideration, it's like, what would you have done? Right. Well, just like every single thing in this case is a little suspicious. But there's, like, a reason that it could be explained. <laughs> Almost right. everything. Yeah. So they <laughs> took John Bonet from the house. They performed an autopsy, obviously. Her cause of death is listed as asphyxia by strangulation associated with cranial cerebral trauma. So she was strangled to death and hit in the head really hard. Yes. Or hit in the head really hard and then strangled to death. Sure. So her death was ruled a homicide, and she had an eight-inch skull fracture from the cranial cerebral trauma. Yeah. Like just to think of 
that kind of trauma coming down on top of your head like that would just be yeah uh, nasty she also had been strangled with a garrot which is like a piece of some sort of material and then you wrap the nylon rope around it and then when you twist that material it twists the rope tighter and tighter and tighter as you twist and this garrot was made from a broken piece of one of Patsy's paintbrushes that was in the basement. Ugh. And a third of it was used for this garrot. A third of it was found in the paint tray. And the other third was never found. That's why this one is so hard. Like, this leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Like, just thinking about, like, yeah. what somebody did. And, like, yeah. Mo- mon- monster. Monster. Yeah, it's it- disgusting. Yeah. So the coroner's original report says that sexual assault was inconclusive, but it has been argued that there was signs of trauma. So, I don't know. It's You can't really get a straight answer from anybody about what the trauma was. If it was at the time of death, if it was ongoing, if it was healing, you know. Some people say it, it was signs of chronic sexual abuse. Some people say it was a one-time injury. It's not very clear. I don't know. <sighs> Again... I I don't like thinking about it a whole lot, but like it's it's a major component to this because some of the suspects that get brought up are this major would be creep. the reason this is major creeps, man. Yeah, and this would be yeah that would be the reason why they would yep. would do this. So so the autopsy also revealed a fruit or vegetable that may resemble pineapple that she would have eaten sometime before her death. And this will come into play later in the theories. I'm sure you think that this proves your theory. <laughs> it could. I mean, there's yeah. so I, I don't know. I know we talked about theories before. I don't know what my theory is anymore. Like, I keep going. There's so many different ones that just seem so plausible. Yeah. Obviously, this turned into a media shitstorm, as everybody, I'm sure, remembers. Her face was everywhere everywhere you couldn't go anywhere like yeah again we've talked about it this is how we got into true crime was because or how we think we did anyway was because jambonet's face was plastered everywhere yeah we were really little yeah we heard about this stuff way too young so the family ended up holding jambonet's funeral in atlanta and that's where they ended up burying her so that makes sense it's where they're from yeah yeah so not a whole lot happened in the case for a while including interviews, it was almost four months before the Boulder police would formally interview the Ramses. That's kind of crazy too, right? Well, yeah, because they had given TV interviews like days after her death, but not police interviews. So this, along with very intentional leaks from the police department to the media and the public, caused pretty much everybody to zone in on the Ramses as suspects. And like, there's lots to go back and forth if they are, if they aren't, but... This starts to be why they are. (laughs) Yeah, but then there's reasons why they wouldn't do the interviews either, you know? Like, I've heard a lot of accounts that they agreed to do the interviews, but Patsy was pretty medicated after her death, which you can understand. And their attorney said she can't give an interview when she's under that many meds. Mm, That's crazy. They wanted them to do it at their house, which the police were like, no... Part of the whole interrogation thing is that we intimidate you and put you in a cold room alone. Like, that's not going to work in your living room, (laughs) you know, which I get. They can't do a police interrogation in somebody's house. Sure. Then they no longer have the upper hand. I get it. 
but they couldn't agree on the terms for the interview. It's not like they were just saying, no, we're not giving you an interview, you know? Some of the leaks were kind of weird, too. They kind of leaked to the media that the family refused DNA tests and blood tests and handwriting samples and all that stuff, which wasn't true. They gave all of that. They had cooperated on that right away. So, I don't know, it got pretty messy between the police and the family pretty much right off the bat. Yeah, it was... Uh, they Maybe they shouldn't have called him after all. Maybe they should have just handled yeah. this on their own. Well, and that's the really sad thing, too, is like... I feel like if they would have handled it on their own, I don't know that the outcome would have been different, but I don't know. It seems like the Boulder police have not made this case very easy. Yeah. And I understand why the parents right away were like, oh, well, you think we did this? Then we're not going to cooperate with you. I, I get that. So especially because they were zoning in on the family from day one. It's really, really obvious when you listen to interviews with any of the investigators on this case from the Boulder Police Department. They're like, well, obviously the Ramseys did it. Like, they just won't even consider any other option. And that's bad police work. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your boss? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You need to talk to somebody. Yeah. How do you, and how yeah. do you, like, who can get them to get the fbi involved like nobody there's no like elected official who can like oversee that and go like the mayor can't be like hey override we're doing it later on in this case the governor does get involved but it doesn't even really help that much because all they can do is give it to a different da but in this case, the DA's office and the police were kind of at odds. Like, the DA's office was not convinced that the family was responsible, so they hired their own investigator, who was convinced that it was an intruder, so kind of the other way. So the DA and the police were kind of going back and forth, and this in- investigator that the DA hired, his name was Lou Smith, and he was a decorated Colorado Springs homicide detective with a lot of experience way more than the Boulder police detectives. But he thought it was an intruder. And so kind of the same way, like he was convinced the family was innocent and that it was an intruder. So it's like all of this is really messy. And that could be totally true too. Like it could be intruders, you know, like, yeah. And that it's again, why aren't the Boulder police willing to look at outside sources? There have been outside sources who have confessed to this. Yeah. Falsely, oddly, and strangely maybe. enough, maybe, perhaps, but there have been people n- not associated with going, hey, I could have done it. I did do it, whatever. <laughs> and like, they fit the bill. Like, when you look and you're like, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense for totally. that creep. Every single suspect makes a lot of sense. Yep. It's crazy. It's weird how it could be anybody. So. In December of 2003, investigators extracted a mixed blood sample from JonBenet's underwear that contained her DNA and an unknown male. So the DNA would exclude the Ramses, but it would be years before anybody would publicly admit that. They just let the media eat them alive and tell people that it was the Ramses for years so that people like you think it still is the Ramses. I have never said that I think it is any of the Ramses. I would like to I'm make kidding. that perfectly clear. Well, and we do need to make that perfectly clear because they like to sue people, so. Well, yeah. I do not think that, but I do have a far out there theory that may 
be a possibility. Involving one. So the DNA would exclude the Ramses, but it wouldn't be for years. That's really kind of sad, but whatever. They just let the media eat him alive. But the sample was submitted to CODIS, but it didn't match any profiles in the database. So in October of 2016, it was announced that the sample might have been from two unknown males. So in other words, the DNA could solve this case, but it could also be extremely sloppy. We don't know how good the DNA is. Yeah, we have no idea what any of it is. I mean, two males, like it could be two males for any reason or like in their inner circle, which is kind of what I was thinking already. So... It gets way worse than that because the DNA gets super duper messy. By the end of it, it says that they found six separate DNA samples belonging to a bunch of unknown people that were found by the test. So it could be innocent reasons that some of these DNA samples were there. Obviously, six people probably didn't murder her. Right. So until they identify all the different DNA samples... To find out why their DNA would be there, it really doesn't make any sense why they would exclude anybody based on this DNA, but okay. So James Kohler, another lead investigator for the DA's office, said that there were other additional traces of male DNA found on the cord, the paintbrush, and that there were six separate DNA samples, like we said, belonging to unknown individuals. It's been said that the same DNA profile showed up on multiple places on her body. And her clothing. And if that's true, it would be hard to explain away. Totally. Like, if the same profile was found in three different places, that would be really hard to explain away. Yeah. But until they figure out who those samples are, we still don't know. It almost doesn't seem real, huh? Like, that all of this happened to this six-year-old, and there's there's so many different theories and things that could go into it. It almost just doesn't seem real. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. But what is really real was the growing tension between the Boulder police, convinced that it was the Ramses, and the DA, who was convinced that it was an intruder. This whole tension between them caused the DA's office to try to take control of the investigation, like you were talking about, try to take it away from the Boulder police. And the Colorado governor, Roy Romer, like, interceded, and he named a guy named Michael Caine as a special prosecutor to initiate a grand jury. Michael Caine played Batman. I thought it was Michael Keaton. Oh. Michael Caine's an actor, though, I think. Maybe. So this got really, really messy, and investigators were resigning, including Lou Smith, because he was convinced that the police were never even going to look into the intruder theory. And then another lead investigator named Steve Thomas, because he was convinced that the Ramses killed their daughter and was pissed at the DA that he wouldn't press charges. So this is really, like, bad. But a grand jury was convened beginning September 15, 1998, to consider indicting the Ramses for placing the child at risk in a way that led to her death and with obstructing an investigation of a murder. So they voted to indict, but Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter didn't prosecute because he didn't believe that they could meet the high standard of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So a lot of people think the grand jury wanted to indict them for murder, which isn't true. It was much lower charges relating to, like, obstruction and not answering the police's questions, stuff like that. And he still couldn't prosecute it. But it makes sense when you know the backstory of why they didn't trust the police. They didn't want to give the police more because the police were screwing this whole thing up anyway and, you know, using information against them and not backing them up when they knew certain things. So I get it. 
You know, I get why they're not cooperative anymore. Totally. So Mary Lacey was the next Boulder District Attorney, and she took over in 2002. And in 2003, she agreed with a federal judge who sat in on a libel case that evidence in the suit is more consistent with the theory that an intruder murdered John Bonet than it was with the theory that Mrs. Ramsey did. So pretty much the next district attorney also believed that the Ramseys didn't do it. So in July of 2008, the Boulder District Attorney's Office announced, finally publicly announced, as a result of newly developed DNA sampling known as touch DNA, that the Ramsey families were cleared as suspects in the case. So she publicly exonerated the Ramseys. Great. You know, I guess. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Like, it's great in in some regards because there's no proof that they did it. But in others, there's no evidence that they didn't. I know. And that's what's kind of sad. But unfortunately... Patsy wasn't around to hear this anyway. Right. Her cancer had returned and she passed away in 2006. So two years before the DA publicly exonerated them. And did her and John stay married through all of that? Yes. Oh, wow. Thought so, so, But like you said, the argument here is until we know who the DNA is, like until we know who all of those samples of DNA are from, you really can't clear use it to clear anybody. Right. Well, you would think anyway. So I don't know why they say anyone is clear. You know, the DNA is so messy. Like, I don't know why they say the family or any of the suspects. I don't don't know how they can say that. So that's pretty much the story of what happened to JonBenet Ramsey. And kind of where it stands now. And that is also where we are going to stand today because we rambled on too much. So stay tuned for next week because we're going to talk about the real theories and Grant's crazy theories about what happened at John Bonet. If you guys have any of your own theories, please visit us on Instagram at From Crime to Crime and tell us all about them. This was an exhausting, long recording, so yep. I'm going to get going. I love you. Merry Christmas. I love you too. Merry Christmas. And uh, we'll uh, we'll do this again. <laughs> Happy holidays. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.